Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Jeannie Mancini, the president of the March for Life. I wanted to speak with Jeannie because people are wondering, post-Dobbs, is there a need for a March for Life? Are they going to have a March for Life? And if so, why? And what does the future look like to her for the March for Life and the pro-life movement? What are some of the challenges to the pro-life movement? And what are some of the misconceptions people have about the movement and the March for Life? And what more can the March for Life and the pro-life movement do to dissuade extremists like the Proud Boys or Patriot Front from getting a foothold in the movement or even at the March for Life? So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. I hope it's an interesting one for you. Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about in this podcast, and that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please Support it by following this podcast on your favorite podcast app and by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you get that subscription? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Jeannie Mancini is up next. Jeannie Mancini, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so happy to be on the Gloria Purvis podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Gloria. You know, everywhere I have gone in anything I've done in the media, I've always had you as a guest. And part of it is not only because you had the March for Life, but you're a friend. And I've been involved in the pro-life movement for a long time, as have you. And I just enjoy talking to you. And you're, I think, somebody that people really need to get to understand and know and realize that you're not just the head of this organization. You're also someone who's a very prayerful person. Oh, Gloria, thanks. I would say in a lot of ways, you and I are kindred spirits. So we probably got a pretty good chemistry when we talk um, on these things, but certainly as friends, we've got a great chemistry. And why? Because both of us, God is at the center of our life and prayer and knowing, you know, the spiritual reality of so many things happening in our world. It's important to both of us. So just delighted that you'd have me on. Thank you. Thank you. So 50 years ago this week, the Supreme Court of the United States released its Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion within the United States. The first March for Life was launched one year later in January 1974. And I heard that it was initially planned as a one-time event to rally for the immediate reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of the March for Life? Yes. And I have to just clarify uh, that I wasn't there. I was just about okay. one when the, yeah, right. when the Supreme Court decision came down. And so I wasn't at the first couple of marches. Right. Uh, but Nellie Gray, who's the founder of the March for Life and was an attorney, she worked for the federal government, studied at Georgetown, essentially rallied people in her townhouse in Capitol Hill the October before the first anniversary of the march. They thought that this would be like a one-off event. 
they'd maybe march once, maybe twice, but they thought that that decision would be corrected because even back then they thought it was a decision of judicial activism outside of the parameters of what the court is called to do, um, which of course is interpret the constitution. But, you know, here we are later, this is going to be the 50th annual March for Life. So no, they didn't expect that Roe would stay on the books almost 50 years. They sure didn't expect either that the March for Life would become the largest longest running human rights demonstration, annual human rights demonstration worldwide. Mm-hmm. So out of, you know, sometimes you hear that beautiful phrase, the church is born where the blood of martyrs are shed. And yeah. I don't know, maybe that works here too, where it's like such a sad thing that we're marching for. And yet so many good fruits have come from that and from the march itself. So, I mean, just as you said, it's been around 50 years. It's among one of our country's enduring and successful grassroots movement in the tradition of the abolition movement, the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement. And believe it or not, there's still some people who know very little, if anything, about the March for Life organization. But yours is an organization focused more than on just one day. Can you talk a little bit more about the organization and what you do outside of that one day of January 22nd that people think about? Absolutely. And, you know, just a little humorously, if I had a nickel for every time someone asked me, what do you do after January? I would be a very wealthy woman, but I'd love to show them and let them take over some of the work. So boy, do we stay busy. I like to say that when you open the door a crack for the Lord to come in and work to build a culture of life, you better watch out because he just comes right in and there's no lack of work to be done. So we are a staff, when we're fully staffed up, we're 16 at the March for Life. And we are uh, working pretty intensely year round. Our most active time is January, of course, planning the annual event. But five years ago, we also began a state march initiative. So let me back up a tiny bit, Gloria, to say this, that our mission is pretty simple and direct. It's to unite, equip, and mobilize pro-life Americans in the public square. And there was a time six, seven years ago when we were a little spread thin and we're doing a little bit of organizational discernment, strategic planning, what have you. And we're asking that question that I think probably many nonprofits do, which is what do we bring to the table that no other group does? You know, in a way, even though we're non-sectarian and inherently, and, and you know, our founding documents are really based on science and um, philosophical reason and natural law, et cetera, versus the wonderful religious arguments that you can make right. for this case. We were asking ourselves really, what is God calling us to? You know, like what is it that that we're meant to do? And the thing that we bring to the table is marches. <laughs> it's <laughs> rallying the grassroots. And so as a fruit of that, we started this March for Life State March Initiative. And we planned our first one that was sort of ex nihilo. In other words, like we weren't coming alongside another march that was already in existence in some state. For example, Maryland was already in existence. Yeah. Uh, our first one was in Virginia in April of 2019. Since then, and even amidst COVID, we now have in 2022, we've had five marches around the states. Next year, we plan to be in 10. Hopefully, we're set now to just double almost every single year or close to it. So that's one of the things that we do year round. We're also very active on social media and then in mainstream media. So taking the voice of the marchers and engaging mainstream media on these issues in hopefully a very loving and compassionate way. And then we also do a lot of activist work day in and day out on the Hill. And then I myself do a fair bit of educating wherever I can, public speaking, you know, whether it's to student groups or, you know, pregnancy care center banquets. 
So we stay pretty busy. So I imagine that didn't change right after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, which happened in June. And I imagine you were doing a lot of public speaking then. How many interviews do you think you were doing a day that first week after the decision? Oh, it was pretty intense. The first day, especially. But it's really changed a lot from five or six years ago. Like post-COVID interviews, you can sit in one room all day with your laptop and, you know, hit all the major outlets in a matter of a few hours. But, oh, I don't know, Gloria. That first day, certainly there were probably about 10 or so. And then maybe after that, three or four a day for the next week. So how did you feel like when you heard like not the leak, but the actual the actual opinion came? What did it feel like? Did you ever think this is going to happen? You know, Gloria, I didn't think it would happen. Now, I will say God really changed my heart in October of 2021. So I I never, ever thought it would happen. But there were a lot of a number of things in October of 2021 that it's like he in prayer and just in different ways really changed my heart so that I started believing that there was this possibility of Roe Mm -hmm. being overturned. I think that one of the things, I mean, just really naturally, it wasn't like he, you know, I heard an auditory voice saying, I'm going to, you know, Roe's going to be overturned. But it was more reading the attorney general's submission to the Supreme Court, Attorney General Fitch's submission to the Supreme Court. And to read through that and to consider all the pieces in place, the makeup of the Supreme Court, the actual law of the 15-week ban, et cetera, all of these different things, it really became clear that, oh, wow, this could actually really happen. And how would they possibly, you know, vote in favor of this law without dismantling all of Roe? And so I think that was the biggest part of it. But then over the course, up until it actually did happen, God really did change my mind. So I had a lot of hope going into last year. But up until then, no, I I never did think that Roe would be overturned in our lifetime. I didn't think it'd be overturned. But I have to say, I was surprised over the last I guess, decade or so to learn that many pro-choice, many people who support legal abortion, who are lawyers, said that Roe was bad law, the way it was uh, constructed. And Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that, you know, which is just remarkable when you consider that. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was a good jurist, you know, so she's going to look and make, you know, granted, we may disagree with her position on abortion and some other things, but she was a fine legal mind and she recognized, yeah, she acknowledged that this is kind of bad, the stuff in Roe. So now that, you know, Roe has been overturned, there are probably some people saying, but then why do you still need a March for Life, an annual March for Life if Roe is overturned? Yeah. Another question, which I wish I had a nickel for. (laughs) So so just kind of taking a step back, while the March was founded the year after Roe because that legalized abortion in all the states around the country, the reality is that we have become the largest, longest running human rights abuse, you know, protest in the world. And sadly, we're nowhere near close to ending this human rights abuse of abortion. I wish we were, but we will march until we've actually finished the work. We're not done yet. What we're looking at here in the United States, first and foremost, is that people are confused about this issue. The fact that many Americans think that a right to abortion is a good thing for women shows us that our work is cut out for us, that we have so much, you know, educating to do about the really the humanity of the unborn child and what that does to a mother to make that decision. So that's one thing. But also, even when we're just looking at, you know, legislation and the actual numbers of abortions, et cetera, we're potentially looking at 
about 200,000 less abortions every year in this country, Mm. which is great. I mean, that's moving in the right direction, but it also means that we still have well over 700,000 abortions in our country every year. And we've got so much work to do just in the way of really even increasing the safety net for moms that are facing unexpected pregnancies. So there's, listen, we're in a new phase, but it's not a phase that means that we don't need to march anymore. So there, there's a new focus, these things that I'm talking about, but we're certainly not finished, unfortunately. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about is I was reading a lot of response about the pro-life movement up to the Dobbs decision and even after. I think there's a misconception, there's several, but one misconception that I read about was that the pro-life movement was started by some racist right-wing people. And I'm like, wait a minute, that was Nellie Gray started the March for Life. She's a woman. You know, they were saying it was men. I was like, it was, she was a woman and she was Catholic. But let me just paraphrase, people probably familiar with this, Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen. I'm paraphrasing him. He says, when I use this, there are not more than a hundred people who hate the pro-life movement, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly believe is a pro-life movement. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about the pro-life movement and your organization specifically? So first, I have to say, Gloria, that I love that quote. I've never heard it before. uh, And I just, I I think it's spot on. It's true about Catholics too, though. I mean, gosh. So I'm not sure, Gloria, that I'll do a very good job of saying like, what are the misconceptions? Because I try not to spend too much time like going down that trail of what do people think of us that isn't accurate. What I will say is that social justice begins in the womb and that the heart of the March for Life and the heart of the pro-life movement is respecting the inherent dignity of the human person and wanting people to fully humanly flourish and seeing that regardless of race, creed, disability, um, imperfection, which, oh, by the way, we all have imperfections, that every life is a gift. And really wanting to cherish and respect that. And so I think that sometimes we get stereotyped as crazy, as, you know, trying to take rights away, as, you know, lacking empowerment, as being fear-based. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I would say, you know, we know that protecting the unborn is a principle all of us should share in society or ought to share in. And we know as well that the pro-life movement consists of people from all walks of life. Excuse the pun. But however, there's a view of the movement and even the march itself is not open or welcoming to people outside of a political philosophy or party affiliation. And let's address that. I mean, what can we do to build an even broader coalition that mirrors the diversity of our country? What do you think can be done? Well, first of all, just to the claim about that. So, yes, it's true that in 2009, Sadly, there was a huge division in the pro-life sort of legislative arena. It was because of the Affordable Care Act. And after that time, it was very hard to get pro-life Democrats to go on the record. I mean, Dan Lipinski is a great example. And frankly, he's the only person whose campaign I've ever given to in my entire life. I'm not, Mm. I don't define myself as a political person. So, and by the way, I'm not Republican either. I'm not Democrat either, but I just say that because I think sometimes people have stereotypes about that. So what we do at the march is every year we try to get someone on both sides of the political aisle because we're not partisan, we're nonpartisan, 
non-sectarian, non-partisan, it's gotten a whole lot harder. I mean, there's no question that there is a party of death now, and it's it's unfortunate to quote Ramesh Panoro in his, his wonderful book, Party of Death. But anyways, so what we've done in recent years is that we have someone from the state level represent pro-life Democrats at the March for Life. So I'm not really sure what else we could do. I mean, I love Democrats for Life, work with them a little bit, Kristen Day, but I mean, boy, do they have their work cut out for them now, unfortunately. So, I mean, I think what we have to do is continue to just educate people about this and especially the fact that this is a social justice issue and that no other human dignity issue can come to be if this first one isn't allowed. Just to mention, too, the political part, so to speak, it's not even political, but we do have elected officials speak at the March for Life, but we never endorse candidates. But the part where elected officials speak at our rally is about one fourth of the rally. And then we have, you know, sports figures and religious figures. We have schools and young people. We have people share their testimonies, whether it's, you know, someone who's been involved in abortion or someone um, who has Down syndrome, who talks about what that's like to be a person with Down syndrome. And that is the large majority of speakers at the March for Life. But for whatever reason, it very much gets reported that it's political, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So, Mm. Well, there are some who have concerned that the pro-life movement is vulnerable to people with extremist views regarding race and religion. Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, was once embraced for his pro-life witness. Despite his history of remarks attacking Black people, for example, he has said things like slavery was a choice. And more recently, Jewish people with some of his anti-Semitic remarks. And it's unfortunate that the entire movement gets tarnished by that. But I think part of, you know, We were so excited, frankly, when Kanye West was saying things that seemed to be pro-life. Other people, people would put in that camp would be Candace Owens and maybe even Ben Shapiro in a similar way. Okay, so some of the things that they've said or are perceived to believe tarnishes, I think, what they think of us as pro-life people because we were like, yay, they're saying these pro-life things on top of reports of white supremacist groups like Patriots Front attempting to take part in last year's March for Life. You know, I'm just like, what is it that you think these extremist groups would even dare to come to the March for Life, would even feel comfortable to try to attend the March for Life? It is a great question. And I wish I had the answer. I don't. But what I can tell you is that we make a statement. We pretty much welcome everyone to come to the March for Life, except... Except groups that promote any kind of violence. So let me just read it to you. The March for Life promotes the beauty and inherent dignity of every human life without exception by working to end abortion, uniting, educating, and mobilizing pro-life people in the public square, our mission that Mm -hmm. I told you before. We condemn... We condemn any organization that seeks to exclude a person or group based on the color of their skin or any other characteristic. Such exclusion runs counter to our mission, which recognizes that all human lives are equal in dignity from the moment of conception, period. The only groups that we don't allow are those groups. So I'm not sure I would agree with the premise that we attract, except that maybe just large things and things that ha- that are very well known. I mean, with a strong brand, et cetera, is always going to, people are going to try to glom on, but mm. it's not who we are. It's not what we're about. Not the heart of the pro-life movement. So when you were saying earlier that the 
basically life in the room, the right to life is the first right or and nothing else happens unless you can protect that right to life in the womb for a particular human person. What would you say to those people that hear that and interpret it as, you know, if you work on any of these other issues at play, these other crucial life issues at play, like racism, poverty, inequality, sexism, that you're working at odds with the pro-life movement because they're hearing, well, if the everything else is contingent on the right to life, then if you're not working exclusively on that and you're working on these other issues, you're working against the right to life movement. Ooh, love this question, Gloria. <laughs> love it. So as a Catholic who was, you know, I was in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps after college. And so, you know, social justice and working towards that in, in every capacity is very important to me personally. Yes, I would say that there is a priority, that there is a priority of working first and foremost towards the most vulnerable and the right by which all other rights are going to stand. So, but is everybody called to work on that one? No. I mean, in essence, subjectively, where we're all going to be, you know, flourishing the most in our lives is responding to the personal call that God has for each of us. So where some are called to work against racism, some are called to work on immigration issues, et cetera, please, please say yes to God and respond to that because the world is going to be a much better place by you doing that. But I would be happy to take that person on in terms of if we're talking about an objective priority about the first things that need to be tackled. And I would say if someone's not first and foremost given the right to life, it undoes the question of, be, of being treated you know, poorly because of their religion or something later on in life. Like first they need to be given that right to actually be born. Understood. Understood. And, you know, there's also within people talking, at least having a beef with the pro-life movement, is they don't think that such a thing as a pro-life Democrat or anything but a pro-life Republican. You can't be anything but a pro-life Republican. And I'm wondering if that might be problematic, potentially. Listen, folks, if that's what you think, tune in for the March for Life this year. I can't announce it yet because it, yeah. we haven't announced it, but, or tune into the March for Life any year. Like we've always had some representative on both sides of the political aisle, but that's just wrong. Unfortunately, it has become much more partisan. I mean, to say anything, you know, contrary to that, it's just not factual, but you could still work hard to get pro-life Dems to speak out on this issue because it's an issue of the heart. They know that. One of the things that I, a point that I've been thinking about because everyone was saying, well, you know, those states that have the most restrictive abortion laws have the least help for women. I flip it and say, but those states that have more robust help for women still have high abortion rates. So <laughs> there's something philosophically that we need to deal with as to why we see abortion as a solution, why we see abortion as empowering. So it's not just the partisan thing. You know what I mean? Oh, I do. What strikes me right now as you're speaking is when I, I can remember when I was getting my master's degree. I got my master's degree in theology and hearing that the District of Columbia was the murder capital of the country at that point. And it was the place where the most abortions were happening. And my professor put those two things together and talked about that there was kind of a spiritual and a natural way in which these things go hand in glove. It's like a culture that begets violence 
in abortion, basically a violence begets violence is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And that these things are not unrelated, that there is a way in which they're related. And I would play that out further to say that a culture that respects, you know, human dignity of every person with beautiful, diverse backgrounds, et cetera, that is going to be a culture that's going to welcome life more. We'll be right back. What do you want the audience to know? What do you want my audience to know about the March for Life 2023? It's happening <laughs> for starters. <laughs> That's quite a question. Will you keep marching? Yes, we will keep marching. We're going to march in January. Our theme this year is next steps, marching mm-hmm. in a post-Roe America. We try to discern a theme every single year that I think is really you know, addressing like the most pressing needs and people are confused. Like, what does it mean that Roe was overturned? What is important now? Do states have more rights? Does the federal role have any kind of, you know, thing to play here in terms of legislation and gestational limits and all these different things? And so we're going to be talking about next steps. And we've got all sorts of fantastic speakers. I don't know if you've seen Gloria, but we've got Coach Tony Dungy and his wife, Lauren, are speaking. They've adopted a very big family, beautiful family. We've got any of your uh, listeners who are fans of that popular TV series, The Chosen, which I highly recommend. I love that series. Jonathan Rumi, the actor who plays Jesus, is our Mm. keynote speaker at the Rose Center, and he's speaking at the March for Life. But we've got a really fun lineup of speakers. Yeah, I you always have um, an interesting lineup of speakers. I remember, actually, that's the first time I met Ben Watson was at the March for Life. He used to play for the New England Patriots. I think he has seven children with his wife now, right? That's right, with Kirsten. And with he Kirsten. played for Baltimore, Baltimore at one point, too. Maybe New Orleans, yeah. too. He played yep, for a few he teams. He's he Ben, and he's hilarious. He's such a good speaker, and he's just a tremendous guy. Love Ben. And it's so, you know, I think it's also so important to hear men's voices in the movement, because sometimes we think that men have nothing to say, or if men have anything to say, it's always, you just better accept whatever choice you make. But they're fathers too. This is their child as well. And I think part of what we want, at least I'll say this, if we're countering rape culture, if you're countering a culture of what they call toxic masculinity, it seems like we'd want men to be included and a part of and responsible for the lives that they help create. And um, often I don't get to necessarily see that on the other side as much. It's I see a lot of women and only men sort of yesing whatever the woman wants, but not a lot of men perhaps standing up to say, yes, you know, we need to take a better role. We need to take responsibility. What would you say to men who are hesitant about being involved in the pro-life movement because women are telling them that it's their body, they don't want men in it? Well, what we've heard from the other side is that one of the primary reasons that women choose abortion is because the guy wants them to and is pressuring them to. So I would want to like have a one-on-one, you know, conversation with these guys and let them know how important they are and that they've got this, they can do this. And what's really important is kind of coming alongside them and supporting them and encouraging them and how their partner more than anything needs to be told, you've got this, you can do this, and I'm going to be there with you. So one of the things as of late, Planned Parenthood has put an emphasis on saying pro-abortion, not pro-choice. And I'm not sure how people receive that if you say pro-abortion, perhaps not even knowing it in some instances, Planned Parenthood, because they're like, there should be no stigma with abortion. Let's not say pro-choice. Let's say pro-abortion. How do you manage that? How do you 
who navigate that language piece, especially people calling the pro-life movement not pro-life, but simply pro-birth. What do you think of that? Well, language matters, and we are very careful with how we present these things. I mean, so it's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that, that Planned Parenthood is leaning more towards pro-abortion. I, my guess is that has to do with destigmatizing yes. abortion, you know, a little bit or trying to. But yeah. I'm reminded very much, it was a time maybe about nine years ago or so, Gloria, and the then head of NARAL Pro-Choice America was Nancy Keenan. And she was in D.C. the day of the March for Life and had some meeting. And that day, she was blown away by how many young people we had that come to the March for Life. Very blown away. And she made a decision based on that day to step down from her job. And she went on the record. I mean, she was interviewed about why she was stepping down. And she said that their side wasn't recruiting the young people the way that the pro-life side was. And she said they needed to market it better and they needed someone younger to do the job. Mm. And what was so clear to me is that it wasn't the marketing that was flawed. It was the product and that young people are very, I mean, I was a teacher. I was a high school teacher. Young people see through lies. They see through untruths very quickly. They see through gray and they see the black and white. They can see the gray too, but they, they see, you know, what is real, true and good. And I think that, you know, we can try to destigmatize abortion. We can call it different names, but unfortunately it doesn't actually change what it is. And reality isn't arbitrary. You know what I'm saying, Gloria, in the sense of like, it is what it is and you can't, you can call it whatever you want, but it's not going to change the reality that it takes a life. It does. It takes Mm -hmm. a life. And that's a really sad thing. And it wounds another life. And nothing changes that, although there's always hope and healing. Anybody who's been involved in any of your listeners who've been involved, please seek hope, seek healing for this. Abortion destroys a life and it hurts the life of another person. And that's the reason why the March for Life exists, right? That's the reason why it exists and to have these conversations and to try to educate. One last thing before we go, you already talked about the marches across the country in the States. People see the March for Life as a national organization, but I have a question. Does it engage in any local pro-life or other service activities within the District of Columbia? Well, you know, we do so in as much as like we'll sometimes go pray 40 Days for Life or support our local pregnancy centers, for example, like the Northwest Center, either by helping them do media interviews. Oh, wonderful. So I would say yes in ways that are very March for Life-esque. Yeah, yeah. Jenny. It's been so great to have you on the show. It's always a pleasure. Um, Much success in the upcoming March for Life. And I know you're a woman of prayer, so I'll just say keep praying. And I'm praying too, so we could be fortified in this. And also to have the right kind of conversations with people who may not yet see the value of defending a life in the womb and see it as a mother versus child or that they have to have this for women's equality that we would still have the heart and the mind and really the love to to be able to have these conversations with people. So thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Gloria. (laughs) It's such an honor to be on your podcast and God bless you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. By the way, leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. 
The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes, Maggie Van Dorn, and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.